2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we want to talk about what Trump has actually done, the policy changes he's made, as opposed to the bizarre tweets, the strange press conferences, and the wild public appearances. Zoe Carpenter has that report. We'll talk with her later in the show. Also, it's hard, but we want to take our eyes off the latest crises in the White House and take a look at the political horizon, at the steps we need to take towards the Democrats retaking the House and state governments in the years to come. That requires doing something about gerrymandering. And on that front, we have some good news from Wisconsin. John Nichols, our man in Madison, will explain. First up, Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court It's Neil Gorsuch. He's a federal appeals court judge in Denver. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, and he's the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. Most important, he's national legal director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. So how would you describe Neil Gorsuch?
3: You know, I think he would describe himself as modeled on the justice that he has been nominated to replace, uh, Anthony Scalia. Uh, he he um, has praised Justice Scalia. He has said that he tries to uh, read uh, both the Constitution and statutes uh, in the way that Justice Scalia did, which means that he is an originalist uh, and a textualist. Um, And those are uh, essentially uh, words that mean that when uh, addressing a constitutional question, we ask, uh, well, what did the framers of the Constitution mean by the words when they adopted them 200 years ago? Uh, and, And that and only that is what is protected by the Constitution. And that's a view that very few justices on the Supreme Court over the history of the Supreme Court have adopted. Most justices have taken the view that that was a starting point. The text is a starting point, but that it was written in fairly broad terms, things like due process, equal protection, cruel and unusual punishment, broad terms, so that it could evolve over time, so that it could develop through both the evolving norms of the society and the development of, uh, of legal precedent. And only Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas take a hardline, originalist view. Uh, Judge Gorsuch, uh, my understanding is, uh, is is close to them in, in taking that kind of view of the Constitution.
2: Let's talk about Hobby Lobby. So a Hobby
3: Lobby uh, was a case in which a business that did not that objected on religious grounds to providing certain contraceptive services to its employees through Affordable Care Act insurance sued to say that they had a religious freedom right under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a statute enacted by Congress, uh, to an exemption from the requirement that they be, in their words, compelled to provide contraception that they deemed to be uh, inconsistent with their religious scruples. And Judge Gorsuch uh, ruled for them said that they did indeed under the statute have that exemption. It went up to the Supreme Court uh, and the the court affirmed him five to four, finding that there was such an exemption. Although I, I, I would say that the court said there was an exemption largely because it found that there was a way to essentially give the religious business their uh, right of free exercise and not deny the women uh, access to contraception. Uh, and since that that alternative existed, the court said the uh, government has to
2: provide it. Legal and civil rights groups have blasted Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch. They say he's a tool of conservative activists who would gut protections for clean air and water and safe food and medicine. What are his critics uh, talking about?
3: Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think that, that, that that criticism is directed at his view that courts should not defer to administrative agencies. It's a fairly technical point although it has, you know, it has significance. It's a it's it's a doctrine was handed down in a case called Chevron and it says that when Congress drafts a statute broadly and there's a question as to how to interpret the statute, the agency which is empowered to enforce the statute ought to be given a fair amount of discretion in how it interprets the statute and so a court should not ask what's the proper interpretation of the statute when they're reviewing agency action under the statute, they should instead say, well, did the agency adopt a reasonable construction of the statute, even if it's not the one we would adopt? And so what that leads to is giving agencies more room to maneuver, more uh, leeway uh, in, in the way that they interpret the statutes that are uh, that 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 they're empowered to enforce, and the idea is that they're the experts, and they're the ones that Congress delegated power to, and the court should respect that. Judge Gorsuch doesn't take that view. He thinks Chevron deference is not justified. That interpretation of statutes is a judicial, uh, a judicial responsibility. shouldn't be deferred to, uh, shouldn't be deferring to agencies on that ground. You know that that will play out differently depending on you know who's in, in charge of the agencies. Uh, you know, I think liberals might actually prefer to have courts take very careful look at, uh, at agency actions under this administration.
2: Of course, the nomination now goes to the Senate. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley has uh, said he's going to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination. He says Gorsuch does not deserve confirmation because the process that led to his nomination was illegitimate. Remind us what the objection is here.
3: So the objection is that this seat was 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 open uh last February when when Justice Scalia died and President uh, Obama was the president at the time and he's the one who had the authority to fill the seat. He nominated somebody, Merrick Garland, the chief judge of the DC circuit, somebody who everybody agreed was fully qualified. Uh, for the job nobody uh cited a single reason to oppose uh, Merrick Garland but the republicans refused to give him a hearing refused to give him a vote uh and took the position we're just not going to take up any nominee that president obama puts forward no matter who that nominee is uh we're going to let the people decide uh and and let the next president uh make that decision and 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 so they essentially robbed uh, president Obama of his prerogative as a sitting president to to pick a replacement justice on the Supreme Court.
2: So, what's the ACLU going to do now? Does the ACLU take a a position on a presidential no- nominees to the court? So
3: we do, we have a long-standing policy of
2: neither endorsing nor opposing
3: nominees to the court or uh, to federal to federal office. Uh, generally, we're a nonpartisan organization. We can speak out, raise our concerns, uh, and we always have, um, but we don't take a position yay or
2: nay. Well, let's talk about the last week of litigation for the ACLU. It was the ACLU that went to court on Saturday when Muslim travelers were being detained at JFK and other airports under uh, trump 's executive order that we call it the the Muslim travel ban, and it was the ACLU that won that emergency nationwide stay preventing deportation of immigrants detained at uh, airports. Where do we stand on these issues now and what's going to happen next so the first thing
3: i 'd say is that we, it was the ACLU, although it was in conjunction with a Yale Law School clinic and with the national Immigration Law uh, Center. Um, so it was. A, it was a team of lawyers uh, that put together an incredible, you know, in, acted incredibly quickly. The, yeah. the, the, the order came down at four thirty. We had the, the case filed that night, and then, and by the next night we had a nationwide injunction. So uh, you know, the law generally moves very slowly. Not in this instance, and and uh, it's a credit to all the lawyers who were involved. Uh, but it was only a temporary stay, and, uh, and so the ultimate validity of the executive order remains an open question. There have been uh, numerous lawsuits filed since... Uh, that initial lawsuit in Brooklyn. There was an uh, injunction issued in Massachusetts. There was an injunction issued in Virginia. There's a lawsuit in Washington in which the um, the state of Washington has uh, has has sued to challenge the uh, the order. We are preparing a uh, a broader establishment clause challenge, which we expect to file this week. So. We're just at the beginning of this process, not the end. But, you know, I think it was just incredible to see the public reaction, the, the pe- people going out to airports, you know, across the country to express their solidarity with uh, immigrants and their opposition to this uh, this order. You know, I mean, the last place I'd want to be if I didn't have to be there is an airport.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know, and, and they're not pleasant places to be. And yet people went out in droves across the country uh, to speak up for immigrants' rights and, and and against this this order,
2: you've written a book about the power of citizen activists. What do you see as the relationship between that kind of massive demonstrations on Saturday and the litigation that the ACLU went to court that afternoon to to file?
3: Well, I, I, I think you know they're, they're they're certainly not unrelated. There's a there's a the massive outpouring of criticism gives backbone to officials, whether they are judges, district court judges, which issued injunctions against the president, or the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, who directed uh, the Justice Department not to defend the statute, or the attorneys general of various states, which are now coming in to bring uh, lawsuits to challenge the executive order, that doesn't happen unless uh... there is a sense among those government officials that there is broad based concern about the government action. You don't stand up against the president if you think nobody cares or the president's you know acting in a way that everybody supports um... so it's critically important that uh... that people came out in the way that they did uh... uh absolutely i i don't think we you know the cases would have come out the same way i don't think you'd see the same kind of condemnation across the board had you not had those kinds of uh, demonstrations.
2: You said the ACLU is filing a broader suit challenging Trump's uh, executive order. What's the argument you're going to be making in this broader suit?
3: There's a real um, establishment clause problem with the statute. It wasn't presented in the Brooklyn case because uh, we had Iraqis who were not Muslim uh, in- involved there. But Trump has essentially conceded. That this is an anti-Muslim, pro-Christian executive order. Uh, he said, you know, multiple times before uh, during the campaign that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to pass a Muslim ban. That he wanted a Muslim registry. That he was going to target Muslims. He asked uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, and Rudy Giuliani has talked about this. He, uh, he said, "I want to ban Muslims. How can I do it legally?" When the uh, executive order was issued, the day it was issued, uh, Trump went on Christian broadcast news and said the purpose of this order is to prefer Christian refugees over Muslim refugees. Well, that's just flatly unconstitutional under the religion clauses of our Constitution. The the purpose of the Establishment Clause uh, is to ensure that the government remains neutral as between religions. We don't want the state favoring one religion over another religion. We don't want the state mixed up in religious disputes and taking sides on religious issues. And yet Donald Trump, as much as, as admitted on national television, that he was doing uh, just that. So we are preparing a, 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 an Establishment Clause challenge, as I say, will we filed later this week, that, that makes that
2: argument. One more thing about Neil Gorsuch before we let you go. Uh, In an op-ed published in 2005 before he became a judge, Neil Gorsuch attacked what he called American liberals for what he said was an over-reliance on constitutional litigation. He said that liberals had a, quote, overweening addiction to the courtroom, close quote. Do you have any idea who he might have been talking about there?
3: (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the ACLU.
2: David Cole, thank you for your work, thanks to the ACLU for its work, congratulations on your victories over the past weeks, and thanks for talking with us today.
3: Always great to talk to you, John. Bye-bye.
2: The opening days of Donald Trump's presidency have been pretty overwhelming big bunch of executive orders and nominations and firings and also the bizarre tweets the puzzling press conferences and Trump's wild public appearances and interviews a lot of it has been outrageous and infuriating some of it has been unethical and illegal and a lot of what he has said has worked to obscure the policy changes he's actually made and these are what really matter For these, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She's the nation's associate Washington editor. She worked previously for Rolling Stone. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets. Along with the nation's George Zornick, she's doing a weekly feature that will recap some of the most important concrete actions taken by the Trump administration. We reached her in Washington. Zoe Carpenter, welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: But but what about Steve Bannon saying the media should shut up? Wasn't, wasn't that outrageous? Wasn't that unconstitutional?
4: <laughs> well, I don't know about un- unconstitutional, but I think it's fair to say that outrageous or not, it was, it was mostly a distraction that doesn't actually have any policy effect.
2: And, and what about Trump tweeting that Meryl Streep was, quote, one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood? Wasn't that outrageous?
4: Now you're getting distracted again. <laughs> okay.
2: okay. Okay. Let's try to focus on what's actually happening in terms of policy changes. The big one this week, of course, immigration. We know about the executive order banning the entry of refugees and people from seven Muslim countries That was going on at the airports this past weekend. But what else did Trump actually do on immigration? I mean, his biggest promise was to start construction of the famous wall.
4: Yeah, there were several other executive orders that were targeted towards unauthorized immigration. So the first one um, has to do with the construction of that uh, border wall along the U.S.-Mexico border border. The thing with that executive order is that it's it's more talk than action. The, the wall can't really be built unless Congress appropriates a huge sum of money for it. Um, so what the order does is it directs federal agencies to shift some money around um, and it uh, outlines some requests for Congress. Another significant one that that actually could have more of an impact immediately is an order that broadens which, which undocumented people can actually be prior, prioritized for deportation. So previously under the Obama administration, people with criminal convictions or criminal records were uh, prioritized for deportation. Um, And that did apply to lots of people who only had minor offenses on their record. So it was already a pretty broad category. But now, under Trump's order, basically anyone that a Border Patrol officer judges to be a threat um, can be prioritized for deportation. So that's a a really broad category. Also, there is an order to expand detention centers, including more privately run facilities, um, which have been shown to have really inadequate care for, for detainees. Um, also in order to, to hire more immigration officers. But again, that would require money from Congress.
2: And what about the sanctuary cities? He has talked about stripping federal funding from sanctuary cities. These are places where, of course, the police refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities by providing information about people they come in contact with. What is Trump actually proposing or ordering about the sanctuary cities?
4: Well, it's a pretty broad and somewhat vague order. In theory, it would stop all federal funding to these so-called sanctuary cities. It's not clear that that's actually legal. Many legal scholars believe that the federal government would not have the authority to um, withhold funding that's not directly related to immigration matters. So, for example, um, they couldn't withhold funding for a transportation project because of the city's practices on immigration.
2: It's the police who are refusing to, to uh, turn over the names of undocumented people they come in contact with. It's the police who are promising they will not turn over the names of undocumented people who they come in contact with. If Trump were to shut off or to cut federal funding for the police, this is a lot of this is federal anti-terrorism funding, protection of airports, is it possible he would actually do that, do you think?
4: <laughs> well, who knows? I, I think the uh, the refugee ban and the travel ban that we saw this weekend was an indication that they may not be thinking through the ramifications of these policies very well ahead of time. So, <laughs> good, good. on the sanctuary city policy, I, I do think it is important to sort of understand why cities have stopped complying with yes. these detention requests, and it's because cities were getting sued for holding people for longer than they normally do. And so under the Fourth Amendment, the cities reliable to claims um for, you know, holding people for too for too long for unconstitutional periods of time. So it's not it's not just that these cities are choosing to defy Trump, it's that they actually have legal liability when they hold people um beyond a certain designated period of time.
2: And many cities like Los Angeles where we record this program has had a, an order in effect since I think nineteen seventy nine that the police will not collect information about immigration status from people they come in contact with. That's not because the LAPD are a bunch of activist radicals. This is a principle of good policing that you need residents to cooperate in helping you solve crimes and being wit- willing to testify as witnesses in trials and if they think they're going to be deported for for coming in contact with the police they're they're not going to do it. For the police it's very important to them to have the cooperation of everybody regardless of their of their immigration status. That's right. Okay, moving on here, the most important part of Obama's legacy, of course, is Obamacare. Trump promised that he would repeal and replace Obamacare uh, on the first his first day in office. He said he would replace it with something terrific. Uh, has he done that?
4: <laughs> no, he hasn't. Like the directive on the border wall, there there's only so much that the administration can do on its own without Congress. So the administration can't dismantle all of Obamacare on its own. What it can do is apply its discretionary authority more broadly. So, for example, the individual mandate um, requires everyone to have insurance. Uh, if they can afford it. But individuals can apply for exceptions, um, for hardship exceptions. And so in theory, this order could encourage agencies to uh, grant more of these exceptions. I think the, the biggest threat of the Obamacare directive is is that it sends further signals about future policy changes and could you know, scare off insurers and, and start the process of causing these markets to collapse.
2: Another area very important to us is the Trump reinstating what we have called the global gag rule. What's this about and what's he actually done?
4: So the global gag rule, it's a Reagan-era policy that's been uh, reinstated or revoked at the beginning of every administration since then along party lines. What what this policy does is is it prevents any global health organization that takes U.S. funding from uh, either providing abortions or talking about abortions with their patients. Um, and, you know, there, there's already a different rule called the Helms Amendment that prevents organizations from using U.S. money um, to provide abortions. But what this law does is broadens that to say you can't use any source of funding to, to provide or, or talk about abortions if you want to also receive U.S. funding. And and so I think the, the critical thing to know about the Trump uh, the Trump rule is that um, it expands this policy. Formerly, it applied to only family planning funding, which is about a six hundred million dollar pot of funding. But Trump's order appears to expand it to all global health funding, um, which is about nine point five billion dollars. Wow! So, say an organization um, is getting some funding from the U.S. to fight malaria, and that organization has a separate program that's not U.S. funded, but but is part of that same organization um, that deals with that deals with women, pregnant women, and may speak to them about their options, which include might include abortion. Um, that organization would have to choose to forego all U.S. health funding for its malaria program or stop giving the full range of reproductive health services.
2: And do you have any sense of what the effect of this would be on women's ability to get abortions uh, around the world?
4: Well, it could be devastating, um, not only to women's access to reproductive health, but to to a whole range of other health services. Many of these organizations that are providing reproductive health services are also providing other critical care. Um, They're providing contraception, which is incredibly important for the fight against HIV and AIDS. Uh, And once you start disrupting these supply chains, for example, the contraceptive supply chains in especially rural parts of developing countries um, in Latin America, in Africa, uh, you can really run into some some big problems. And I think the final thing to understand is that this policy is um, most likely going to be counterproductive because the policy has been reinstated and revoked so many times. It's sort of a perfect control experiment to to see what its effect is. And so there's there's good evidence um, from previous research that what happens when you instate this policy is abortion rates actually go up because um, women don't have good access to contraception once you interrupt the work of these types of organizations. Um, So there are more unplanned pregnancies and also then uh, more abortions.
2: Of course, we've also been very concerned about the Keystone XL Pipeline and the Dakota Access Pipeline in South Dakota. Tremendous popular mobilization by the uh, climate movement succeeded in blocking both of uh, those. What is Trump doing with the pipelines now?
4: So he issued uh, presidential memorandums last week uh, to restart both both of those pipelines. Well, restart the pipeline in the case of Keystone and to approve the pipeline in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Again, neither of those orders will have an immediate impact. Um, in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Army Corps of Engineers is still in its review process and that process can't just be preempted by this order. In the case of the Keystone process or the Keystone pipeline, there are economic reasons why that pipeline might, might not still go forward. Um, I think we can expect continued resistance on the ground from activists in both cases. So there, there are still things to be determined, although um, it's worth noting that TransCanada has resubmitted its application uh, for the Keystone pipeline already.
2: Uh, we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon, so we're not going to cover the things that Trump did on uh, later in the week. But I, I did see the news that White House said on Monday that President Trump would leave in place the Obama administration's 2014 order that created new workplace protections for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. The uh, official statement said, the pre- quote, President Trump continues to be respectful and supportive of LGBTQ rights. I'm kind of amazed they actually used that, uh, that phrase. So this is one executive action he is not taking, one of Obama's executive actions he's leaving in place. What do you make of that?
4: Well, I think that it may just be that this is a fight that would have been particularly heated domestically, and they've just decided they don't want to take on this fight right now. Um, I do think there will be pressure for more actions that support "quote unquote" religious freedom, and and that could conflict with this laws. I don't think we should take the fact that this particular Obama directive is staying in place as you know the last word.
2: Okay, in a minute or two we have left here, there have been some, some uh, alarming uh, executive orders blacking out communications. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, these weren't official orders. Um, They were internal communications instructing employees at multiple agencies to stop communicating with the public. Um, There was a directive that all environmental assessments and reports from the EPA would have to be reviewed by political staff and then social media accounts getting closed down. So I think this is just a, a sort of a signal of a broader effort to control um, and centralize all communications so that, for example, scientific information on global warming that might be inconvenient to the administration's priorities vis-a-vis energy policy aren't released to the public.
2: Zoe Carpenter, along with George Zornick, she's doing a weekly feature that will recap some of the most important concrete actions taken by the Trump administration. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Zoe. Always a pleasure. Now we want to take a step back from the deluge of Trump news and look at the longer-term battle to restore our democracy. Nothing has done more to sustain Republican power in the House of Representatives and in the states than the gerrymandering of legislative and congressional district lines. That's the work of Republican politicians in the states. They've used their control of state governments to warp election results in their favor. One of the worst offenders has been Wisconsin, Scott Walker's Republican Wisconsin. But now we have some really good news about ending gerrymandering in Wisconsin, a court decision that could transform our political future. For that, we turn to our man in Madison, John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is People Get Ready. Hi, John. Hey, it's great to be with you, John. So what's the good news from Wisconsin? Wisconsin.
5: Well, yeah, it's not that common that I get to report good news from Wisconsin. So, um, yeah, this is encouraging. And if you want to understand one of the most frustrating things about Donald Trump's presidency, uh, it is the fact that he was given the office with the support of only 46 percent of the American people after losing in the popular vote about three million. And yet he has this immense power and that power is not rooted in the fact of his election, but rooted in the fact that Republicans control both the Senate narrowly there, but also the House of Representatives. And so, you know, how we constitute our legislative chambers at the state and national level is a very big deal. It it really uh, defines whether we're able to push back against power and whether we're able to, you know, mobilize in the streets and then connect with, you know, some grouping. And a state capital or the national capital to stop something bad from happening. So, gerrymandering, this process by which you create legislative districts or congressional districts that are overwhelmingly erring toward one party uh, as opposed to the other, which create the clear electoral bias, um, this is a big deal. And Wisconsin has had arguably some of the worst gerrymandering, not just in its legislative districts, but in its congressional districts. And remember, legislatures draw congressional districts largely around the country to such an extent that in 2012, when Barack Obama carried the state of Wisconsin, when Tammy Baldwin was easily elected as a progressive Democrat to the U.S. Senate, Democrats won roughly 175,000 more votes for state legislative seats than Republicans. And yet, Republicans got Uh, an almost 20-seat margin in the state legislature, right, in the state House. And so there's a disproportionality there. There's a dysfunction there. That plays out at the federal level as well. In that same year, uh, 2012, Democrats actually won the accumulated national vote for congressional seats, for House seats, and yet um, disproportionately Republicans ended up with control of the House. So when you draw these lines in so biased a way – That you actually reverse the will of the people, that you overwhelm the will of the people, that's a big deal. And what has happened is a group of lawyers, national lawyers, but particularly here in Wisconsin, because Wisconsin is one of the most egregious examples of this in the country, uh, they developed a legal strategy that makes a constitutional argument that says essentially, you know, you've created an unequal circumstance. You don't have equal protection. You don't have. Basic fairness, because there is such an imbalance in particular districts that people aren't represented; that there, that tremendous numbers of voters uh, cannot have their will uh, expressed through a fair and contested election. And it's much more complicated than that. I don't want you know. There's a, there's a great deal more to it. But once you communicate that baseline, you start to understand. Well, of course, most people would agree with that. What's remarkable is that in November, these lawyers got a three judge federal panel to agree with their position. And then last week they got the federal panel to order the state of Wisconsin to redraw its lines, which is a very big deal. This is midway through uh, the 10-year process by which, you know, you you draw lines right after a census comes through and then you have a 10-year process uh, during which those lines stay in place. To order the redrawing of those lines in time for the 2018 election is massive. And what's interesting about this is because this case is almost certain to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, there's a very good likelihood, not a guarantee, that Wisconsin might actually have the physical presence, precedent of redrawn lines uh, as well as this very good ruling. And it's something to put on the desk, and I'll be very blunt with you, to put on the desk of Anthony Kennedy, right, the swing judge on the court, and to say, look, we know you're not some big lefty but we also know you're not some big partisan. And here's a basic practical reality, something that is profoundly unfair that really does err against basic premises of the American experiment, including some constitutional precepts. Won't you join with some grouping of of justices here to rule gerrymandering unacceptable? If the court were to do that, now again, that's a big if. I understand all the complexities with the court, but if the court were to do that, That precedent would go almost certainly beyond Wisconsin and create standing uh, to overturn radically gerrymandered districts across the country.
2: Now, let's be clear on what ending gerrymandering will not do. By itself, it would not change the statewide vote for president, and Trump carried Wisconsin narrowly. Wouldn't change the statewide vote for governor, Wisconsin-elected Scott Walker. And it wouldn't change the statewide vote for Senator. Our man, Russ Feingold, lost. But it will change the really important things you're talking about, especially... The House districts, those are going to be completely redrawn nationwide after the 2020 census. Now is the time that we have to mobilize to have Democrats in place in state legislatures when the 2020 census leads to a redrawing of legislative uh, district lines. And here we're talking about control of the House.
5: It's potential. And remember, this is about Wisconsin state legislative districts. so No one gets confused. But you're right legislatures draw house districts. And also if this standard were to be accepted, if the Supreme court were to say, look, it's just not acceptable to draw districts that are full, you know, a whole state that's essentially uncompetitive because you jam the Democrats into tight urban districts usually, and then you create, you know, make everything else Republican. And so this is an interesting debate and it's a, it's an opening, but I would I'll, I'll take it out of the partisan zone as well, because fair and competitive lines also free moderate Republicans, more moderate Republicans to make the case that you can't nominate an extreme right winger. You got to nominate somebody who can win in November, right? Yeah. Today we don't have that. Yes. And so that begins to alter the character of the Republican party potentially. And then it also does one other thing. It creates a circumstance where potentially Uh, Democrats and Republicans find they have to work together, that they've got to find some common ground. It moves things back a little bit more toward the mainstream. And as we're looking at what's going on in Washington, that's a big deal. I I know that, that many folks may say, oh, this is good for Democrats. I would argue it's also good for a certain sector, probably now a very small sector, the Republican Party that seeks to be more mainstream, and for democracy itself. And one thing I want to emphasize, you know, it makes it possible when you have competitive legislative districts and you have a legislature made up of people who know that they have to go back to the voters rather than knowing that they are absolutely secure once they've, they've been nominated for a seat. When they know they've got to go back to the voters and they've got to face them and, and deal with, you know, how they've handled the issues, things like a minimum wage increase become at a state level and ultimately if you had fair draw nationally at the federal level things that are so very, very popular become much more possible.
2: Great point. And
5: so it's it's important stuff that's going on here. And that's why this is, this is about a lot more than one state. And frankly, it's about a lot of the issues that concern us with Donald Trump.
2: Of course, the really big question is who draws the new legislative, state legislative districts, and uh, how are they drawn? We record this program in Los Angeles. California has one of the best systems for drawing election districts. In California... There was a 2008 ballot initiative to remove this from the uh, political control of the state legislature and establish an independent commission that draws the lines for both congressional districts and state legislative districts. The commission is made up of 14 members Five Democrats, five Republicans, and four people who don't belong to either party. I had to look this up on Wikipedia. I remembered
5: that it Very was, well done, John. Thank I'm you. you.
2: I'm reading straight out of Wikipedia here. And the map drawn by the commission, there's even an appeal of that, can be overturned by a public referendum. And if that happens, then the California Supreme Court must appoint a group to draw a new map. So uh, taking it out of the partisan zone— uh, into the hands mm-hmm. of an independent commission that has representatives from across the political spectrum subject to the will of the voters through referendum. That is a really democratic way of doing this. And let's just notice what happened in California after after that. Democrats won control of all state offices and a huge majority <laughs> of the congressional yeah.
5: seats. And that's a part of this that's, that's significant. Once you have kind of freed the process up, And remember, in Wisconsin, there is no independent commission. This goes back to the legislature. But obviously, the legislature is under pressure now because the courts are watching. And of course, if you were to draw incredibly unfair lines, you have the possibility of somebody filing, the certainty of somebody filing for an injunction and potentially a situation where the courts would draw the the lines. And so the legislature now has a, you know, a, a bit of a pressure to draw fairer districts. And we'll see how that all plays out. I'm not trying to be rose colored glasses here. I think there's a lot of struggles on the political side. There's also real struggles on the legal side going up through the courts. But one of the things, one of the mistakes that people make is to assume that when the lines are drawn fairly, you know where things are going to turn out because you think, well, wow, there's some hidden majority that favors my side or their, your side or something like that. The reality is that when you free the process up, it does become more reflective of the sentiments of the great mass of people. Now, in California, a state that voted two to one for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, it's not particularly surprising that you have, you know, if you're reflecting the popular sentiments, you're going to have an overwhelmingly democratic circumstance. That's that's the reality of the politics of the state. Um, In other states, however, you would have much more competitive politics. And I'm not going to tell you that Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, a bunch of these other states would necessarily immediately flip over to being democratic. I don't think that's the case. What I do think is the case is that in these competitive states, if the mood of the country and if the mood of those states shifts toward a revulsion with Donald Trump, right? Let's say that people, even people who voted for Trump decide, wow, this is really going in a bad direction. If you have fair lines, you have the potential for a wave election that pushes back against an authoritarian or, or simply irresponsible rule. And this is why, as we talk about Trump, as we talk about you know, Paul Ryan and other folks, we have to bring in this structural side. We have to recognize you know the first duty is solidarity. The first duty is to stand up to that which is being done wrong in the immediate moment. But if we're to have any sort of long view, we have to start to address the structural dysfunctions and flaws that make it possible for a political party that does not have majority support to end up with overwhelming dominance of our governance.
2: John Nichols with the long view. John, thanks for bringing us some good news from Wisconsin.
5: Hey, pleasure, my friend. Next week, uh, Minnesota.
0: <laughs> okay. take, 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 take the food. We
2: Start making sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer, Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the
0: story of the one.